Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Infusion. My name is Joe John. This is my bride, Nancy. We're going to read this morning's scripture text. We've been here about four weeks, and we're just blessed to be called, to call Infusion our home. So we're going to read uh, from Exodus 12, 1 through 13, and 21 to 23, if you want to follow along. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be in the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, which is the top of the doorframe, of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of them remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this matter you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And verses 21 to 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood of the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house, your, your house to strike you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to be here. There are places all over the world where this is not permitted, it's not popular, and people are going to jail, and we take this for granted. Lord, there's so much in these passages. Would you open our eyes and our understanding as Matt comes forward? Lord, help us to be in the moment to grasp what you want us to take away from this, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, things that will transform us. Lord, we can see Jesus throughout what we've just read. We can see him from cover to cover. Help us to see him afresh as we meet, Lord. And we want to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise and that Jesus would, be, would receive the preeminence in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. This morning, we're continuing our, our series from the book of Exodus. And uh, the text that, that we just read is, is pretty gnarly. It's pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Today we're looking at the tenth and, and the final plague that God brought to Egypt. Earlier in the story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Lord, uh, the Lord said, Pharaoh, the Lord said, let my people go. And you remember what Pharaoh said? He said, no. 
He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In other words, Pharaoh said to God, you're not the boss of me. Y'all hear kids say that? You're not the boss of me. How many of you have said that? We all have, I think, at one point or another. See, these, these Egyptians, you need to know, they're very religious people. And they worship many, many gods. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh wants to know, what in the world is so special about your God that I should obey him? I've got my own God, so I'm set. Thank you very much. Now leave me alone and get out of here. Well, this, this is an incredibly significant question for us today. Because the truth of the matter is, I don't care who you are, how old you are, how young you are, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're exploring it, whoever it is, it could be anybody and everybody, every single one of us lives for something. That is the basic truth in life. Every single one of us lives for something. We all have something in our lives, either whether it's totally conscious or subconscious, we all have something that gives our life meaning. We all have something where we kind of kick that to the top of our priority list and then everything else is secondary at best. We all live for something. And my question for you this morning is, what is it in your life? What is it that you find yourself living for, whether it be consciously or subconsciously? And they could be good things. It could be your career or, you know, just uh, whatever job it is that you're, you're working at. It could be your family. It could be the chargers. Oh, goodness, I hope not. It could be your health or sex or comfort or education or money or approval. It could be security, success, beauty, whatever it is. Every single one of us has something that we live for, consciously or subconsciously. And here's what we need to, uh, once we admit that, and, and hopefully we can put our finger on something or several somethings, What we need to see is that whatever it is that you live for will control you. Whatever it is that you live for will control you. That's how it works. It'll cause you to be driven because you you gotta have it. It'll cause you to be worried if it's uncertain. It'll make you angry if you think that it's threatened. You'll be depressed if you lose it. And if you get it, you will be empty. We all live for something. And whatever it is that we live for will control us. That's just the way things work. Now, do you know what this means? I'll tell you what it, I'll tell you what it means uh, for me, and I think it's true for everybody. What this means for me is that whatever it is that controls me is my God. Whatever it is that controls me is my functional God. Whatever it is that causes me to be driven, whatever it is that causes me to be worried, whatever it is that causes me to be angry, whatever it is that causes me to to despair, whatever it is that causes me to be empty, shows me that there is a false God that enslaves me. So my question for you this morning is, what is it in, in your life? It may even be something good, but it be, has become your top priority 
It has been the one thing that you look to so that your life is, is okay. So what comes to mind for you? I want you to hold that in your, in your mind as, as we move forward because I'm telling you, it'll rip you off every single time. Even if it's something good, it will let you down. And we keep going back to it time and time again. God has created us for so much more than that. He's created us to experience true security. He's, he's created us to experience true joy, true rest. That's what he wants for us. We settle way too easily. You know, it is so easy for every single one of us, for us to say, whether consciously or subconsciously, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I mean, who is the Lord that, that I should live for, for him? And there's probably no better answer in all the scriptures than in the story that we just read uh, just now. And here's the thing. Here's what we see. That both for, for Jews and Christians, the, the Passover is the heart of our faith. The Passover is, is what's unique about our God. At the center of our faith is the bloody death of a helpless victim. God, God says the, the destroyer is making his, his move. The, the most relentless, powerful force in the whole universe is coming in judgment. And, and the only way to escape is through the bloody death of a fluffy little lamb? I mean, at best, that is, that is confusing. And at worst, I mean, that's, that's ridiculous and offensive. But what we see is that... This, this is somehow central for both Judaism and Christianity. For Judaism, the Passover is the central event. For Christianity, the Passover is the central event that points to an ultimate reality. At the heart of both of these great religions is the bloody death of a helpless victim. So... What in the world can we learn from the Passover? What in the world can we learn that's valuable to our, our hearts, our souls, our lives? What is it that we can learn from, from the Passover? What difference does it really make in our day-to-day -day living? Well, we're going to look at three major differences that this can make in your life. And together, they have the power to totally and radically transform your life. The first truth is this, and this is a tough one. If you're taking notes, the first truth is, is this, that, that each of us must face the destroyer. Now, that's, that's difficult. That's tough. Why, why, do I say, why do I say that? Well, what's going on? Well, what we see happening here is, is a preview of, of the final judgment. God told Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. So God sends the plagues. And the final plague is the finale. And God says, I'm going to fast forward to judgment day. On this one night, in this one place, I will bring a preliminary, temporary judgment day. Verse uh, 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. So here's Egypt, the greatest nation in, on the planet, the most powerful military force on earth. But that night, the destroyer brought a whole nation to its knees. 
that night, in that place, judgment totally shakes up history. We all need to know, we all need to know that each of us must face the destroyer ourselves. Now, I want to acknowledge something. This bothers me. I, I don't like this. I don't like it at all. And there's a very good chance that you don't like it either. I understand. And you know what? I think there's a good reason for that. Because when God created humankind, he did not create humankind for judgment. He created humankind for relationship. So of course we're not going to like this. Of course we're not going to like this at all. We know that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. Now I have a question. Why does the destroyer single out the firstborn son? Well, in that culture... Uh, the firstborn represented the whole family. And that's hard for us to understand because in our culture, we think of ourselves more as individuals as opposed to being a part of a, of a family. In that culture, people thought more of being a part of a family than they did as, as individuals. And so when the father died, the inheritance would go to the firstborn son who was then responsible for being the new provider for the rest of the family. The firstborn son, in a very real sense, was the embodiment for, for the, of the hope for the family's future. So in singling out the firstborn son, God is sending a message that is, that is clear to them, but, but totally confusing for us today in our age, in our culture, with our, under, with our understanding. God is saying that, that every family in the world owes God a debt of sin. The firstborn, the representative of the family, is responsible, is responsible, and their lives are lost unless they're redeemed. Their lives are lost unless they're bought back. Their lives are lost unless they're purchased at a price. Everyone needs to face the disturbing reality of God's judgment. We, we don't like it, and so most of the time we just either reject it or, or we dismiss it and live in denial of it. But we need to face it. God lovingly calls us to face this reality for our good. We see in verse 22 that God says to the, the Israelites, None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. He's saying this to the Israelites. He's warning the Hebrews. The destroyer is not just coming for the, for the Egyptians. Yes, the Hebrews are oppressed. And yes, the Egyptians are the oppressor. Yeah, the, the, the Israelites, Israelites worship the Lord God and the Egyptians worship um, idols. And yet, if a Hebrew stepped out of the house in its protection that night, nothing could protect him from the destroyer. And if any of us were to face the destroyer on our own, we would be lost. It does not, I'm telling you, it does not matter how morally righteous you are compared to anybody else. It does not matter how religious you may or may not be compared to anyone else. It doesn't matter how, you know, doctrinally accurate you are compared to anyone else. If we go out and meet the destroyer on our own, we'd be just as lost as the Egyptians were that night. 
Now, I know, I know that a lot of thoughtful, insightful people think that this is totally messed up. This is totally messed up. I get that. I mean, that's hard for, for us to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But let me ask you, what is it? I've been thinking about, about this. What is it about this that feels messed up to us? Well, for one, the idea that every individual on earth deserves judgment because no one could live up to God's standard. Um, we don't like that. And so usually we just say, forget that. Besides, I have my own standards. I'm going to do what's right for me. And you know what? That, that sounds so good. I got to do what's right for me. I mean, that's our culture's creed right there. I got to do what's right for me. It sounds so good, but I'm telling you, it is so deceptive. It is so deceptive, and, and it will rip you off every single time. And so, so we need to, to wrestle with that because we're drawn to it. But let's do this. For the sake of discussion, let's pretend that there are no absolutes. There, there are no Ten Commandments. There is no golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated out the window. Esteem others better than yourselves out the window. Let's, let's just go ahead and pretend there are no absolutes. We set our own standards, and, and so we will do what's right for us. We make our own rule. Now, now humor me here, okay? Humor me. Imagine there is that, that an undercover video surveillance is, is recording your life. Okay, just humor me. Imagine that undercover video surveillance is recording your life. But it only records when you say things like, you know what, that person shouldn't do that. And you shouldn't do this. You should do this. And it's recording everything that, that, that you're saying when it comes to the moral standards that you call other people to live up to. And then... Right at the end of your life. I mean, you're almost, your days on this earth are just about over. And that video gets posted to Facebook. And everyone, everyone evaluates your life on the basis of the moral standards that you yourself imposed on other people. I'm telling you right now, no one on the face of the earth could even live up to their own standards. Everyone on the face of the earth would fail their own judgment. So we get that. Let me, let me ask you, have you ever been clobbered with this horrible, disturbing realization that, that, that we are worthy recipients of God's judgment because we have not lived up to God's moral standard, let alone our own. I mean, it's horrible. We weren't created. God did not create humankind for judgment. And for years, for years, I, I acted like, I, I acted on, I think more so on a subconscious level, I acted as if I could pass God's judgment on my own. It is so easy. It is so easy. Even if, if, if you think or you, you hold on to the belief that this isn't true, 
it's so easy to act as if that our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. Do you know what you call that? You call that self-righteousness. That's self-righteousness right there. And you can't help but look down on others when you're self-righteous. That produces a dark heart that's far from a gracious, from a, from a gracious God. So we need, something, we need something else. After a while, I, I came to the realization, a realization that, that just hit me in the face, that in, not only do I, I mean, that in the presence of an all-holy God, I am a sinner. I have, come, I have fallen way short of God's standards, way short of God's righteousness. I don't even live up to my own standards. And you know what? There's no denying it. I mean, I can try, but in reality, there's no denying it. I had a debt that I could not pay. I, had, I have not kept God's law summed up in loving God above all others and loving your neighbor as yourself. I failed miserably in that. I had to, if, if I faced the destroyer then, I would have been just as lost as the Egyptians. You know, a lot of people, they, they come to that point if they don't just if they can't successfully dismiss that, if they can't successfully just brush that off or sweep it under the rug, if most people, if they take that seriously, they get filled with despair. The solution is not sweeping it under the rug. The solution is not uh, just pretending that, that, that that's not our, our, our reality. We need to face our, our despair. We need to come face to face with, with the hopelessness that we have in and of ourselves if, if we're trying to earn our way to being accepted by God. So, once we come face to face with this reality, there's something else we must realize. First, each of us needs to face the destroyer. But second lesson is this, that, that our only hope is a lamb. I know that sounds weird to say it that, that way, but hear me out. What was Israel's only hope that night? What, what was the only hope they had that they could be spared from the destroyer? Their only hope was a lamb, a dead, bloody lamb. God said in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The destroyer will not touch you. So here's the reality. Here's the frightening reality of that night uh, many years ago that in every single household in Egypt there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. See, the lamb got what the son had coming to him. The lamb was the substitute. The lamb paid the family's debt. I mean, can you imagine being a firstborn son in a Hebrew home? I'm the firstborn son in my household, in my family. Dakota, my son, is the, the firstborn. I mean, I imagine there standing beside the table and realizing the only reason that we're alive is because that lamb is dead. But there's more. 
When God warns the Israelites to not go outside, he is saying that, that, that this is not the final deliverance. This is not the, the true Passover. You still have a debt of sin. You're still under judgment. As important as this deliverance is, you need a greater deliverance. As significant as this Passover lamb is, you need a greater lamb. You have a greater problem. You have a greater debt. You have a greater bondage. Therefore, you need a greater deliverance. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, celebrated the Passover meal. So, this morning, I want you to imagine that you are one of Jesus' disciples. I want you to imagine sitting at the table like you've done for, for many years on end to celebrate the Passover meal. And then when Jesus stands up, you realize that he's taking the traditional place of the father of the ho- that, that the father of the household would have taken. He stands up to explain the meal just like your, di- your dad did year after year after year for as long as you can remember. And it all seems very familiar to you. But then suddenly, everything is different. And, and you would have been totally shocked, totally shocked by two things. First, when Jesus holds up the bread, you would expect him to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be free. That's what you would expect for Jesus to say. That's what you were supposed to say year after year. But instead, what does Jesus say? He does not say that. What Jesus says is he holds up the bread and he says, this is my body. This is the bread of of my affliction that I am going to suffer so that you can be set free from the bondage to sin and from, from death. This is my suffering that will bring you ultimate freedom that you've been longing for. That's the first shock. I mean, Jesus changes everything. The second shock is is this. When Jesus stood up to explain the meal, something was missing. I mean, you expected to see three things at the Passover meal, three things on the Passover table. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and the lab. Three things that were mentioned in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. Three things that would have been at every single, on every single Passover table for 1,400 years. But as you look at the table, something's missing. There's no lamb. How could this be a Passover meal without the lamb? There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. The lamb was deliberately left out because Jesus is saying, I am the lamb. 
He's saying my death is the essential event to which all of history has been moving. Then Jesus took the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is saying, I am the Passover lamb. My blood pays your debt so that the destroyer will pass over you. Jesus is saying, I'm about to be sacrificed and then you will see this Passover in a whole new way. My death will accomplish the the ultimate salvation, which all of history has been moving to. After 1,400 years, 1,400 years of tradition, Jesus drops this bomb and just blows everybody away. That's why John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is saying, now I get it. Jesus is is the real Passover lamb that all the other Passover lambs throughout all these centuries is pointing to. Jesus is the one whose blood takes away our sin once and for all time so that the destroyer passes over over us. Now I get it. Our firstborn sons weren't spared because of the death of some lambs. Our firstborn sons were saved because God gave up his firstborn son. Jesus came to represent all those who put their trust in him on the cross. He took on our judgment so that we might live together with him forever in his perfect family. And we experience the love and the acceptance and the joy and the rest that we've been created for, that we long for. So let me ask you this morning, can you say with John, I get it now. I get it. I I remember this kicking in for me. I I realized that I owed God a debt that I could not pay. I, I, I couldn't live in denial anymore. I had to admit that I fall so far far short of God's standard, that, that my life was so full of sin that not only destroyed my life, but the people around me, that I deserved God's judgment. But because of God's grace, I also realized that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, and that changes absolutely everything. It changes everything. And that's our, that's our last point. Trusting in Jesus as the lamb changes everything. And what changed that night for the Hebrews? Well, here, if, if you would have asked one of the, the Hebrews several years later, well, you know, what, what changed for, for you that night? What changed? They would have said something like, you know what, it is amazing. I mean, I, I don't deserve it. I mean, I know me. I know the life that I lived. I don't deserve it. I deserve to die, just like the Egyptians. But that night, through the death of the, of the lamb, God spared me from the destroyer and delivered me from slavery. And now we're headed to the promised land. And now he's changing me every single step of the way. And that's exactly what the Christians say. It's amazing. 
I, I deserve God's judgment because I fall so, I mean, so short of God's standard. Even, I can't even live up to my own standards. But through the death of his son, God delivered me from slavery to sin and death and final judgment. And, and now we're headed to the real promised land. And it's guaranteed. And God is changing me every single step of the way. So what's that look like? What's that look like when, when God changes us? In what ways does God change us as Christians? Well, let me just point out a few things, okay? To the extent that you, you behold and you understand and, and you internalize the, the lamb that was slain, the, uh, the, what it means, your way of relating to people will totally change. It'll totally change. You know what? Left to ourselves, we relate to people like chickens. We do. We relate to people like chickens. We have our pecking order. We feel superior to, to others and feel inferior to others. Anybody, anybody come to mind? I mean, we see this in families. We see this in gangs. We see this in business. And we see it in churches. We do. And it's messed up. But when you behold the lamb that was slain, you lose the pecking order. Why? Because you can't feel superior to anyone. If you know, I mean, if you know that you are so lost, it took nothing less than the death of God's firstborn to save you. How are you going to be superior in light of that? And you won't feel inferior to anyone if you know that, that you are so loved that the Father gave his Son. I mean, Jesus gave his life so that you can live with him forever. So see, you will relate to people and treat people no matter who they are. You'll treat them with dignity and you will treat them respect with respect. No matter who they are. Also, your, your, your way of viewing accomplishments or success or whatever, it will totally change. Left to ourselves, we think that the way to get ahead is to roar like a lion, Right? Survival of the fittest. When, when push comes to shove, I mean, you shove harder, right? You don't give an inch. Take the ground, moving forward. Make it happen. If you're anything like me, you're just kind of wired that way. And I know personally I have to fight that. Because when we behold the Lamb, you realize that the, the way that Jesus gets to the throne is not by becoming a roaring lion, but only by becoming a lamb, a lamb who lays down his life for others. See, the lamb knows the secret. And you know what the secret is? The secret is this, that the greatest power in all of the universe is the weakness of a self-sacrificing servant. The greatest wisdom in the universe is the foolishness of self-sacrificing love. 
See, Christ crucified is, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then the last thing that I'll mention is that this will totally change your way of dealing with, with suffering. I mean, not, I mean, suffering is as hard, as difficult, as dark as it, as it may be. This, this can totally transform your suffering. And, and, but let me also maybe back up a little bit. This will totally transform your discontent. Okay? We live life, we rearrange our priorities drastically sometimes based on discontent. Left to ourselves, suffering leads to despair and bitterness. Have you suffered lately? Have you been just discontent lately? Sometimes the suffering is is so severe, you feel like you're never going to recover. But when you behold the Lamb who was slain, you can face suffering with joy and hope, and the pain doesn't crush you. Because you know that the Lamb was slain so that in God's perfect timing, all suffering will one day come to an end. And until that day, you know that you are never alone in your suffering. Isaiah says, as he is speaking of the Lamb, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Speaking of the lamb, Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So when you go through your, your season of discontent, feeling like there's some kind of emptiness in your life, look into other things to, to um, satisfy that, that emptiness. When you go through, through deep frustration, when you go through dark and painful suffering, it's so easy to think that, that no one else understands what I'm going through. But the lamb understands. He knows. He, he still bears the scars of his suffering. He still feels the pain that you face in this broken, difficult world. And at the same time, at the same time, you know that the lamb who was slain has triumphed through the glory of the resurrection. And one day, that means that one day, all of the bad, horrible, terrible things that have ever happened will be caught up in the glory of the resurrection in such a way that all of the bad things will make the glory even more glorious. Do you see how this changes everything? It absolutely changes everything. So as I close, um, the Bible teaches, and, and our experience confirms it, that every single one of us lives for something. We all have something that we look to to, to get our meaning and our, our purpose and our satisfaction and whatever it is that you live for, whatever it is that, that, that you're looking to for your identity, to say, hey, this is who I, I really am, that will control you. 
It'll control your behavior. It'll control your attitudes. It'll control your, your emotions. And whatever ultimately controls you is your God. And it'll rip you off and let you down and leave you empty every single time. Like the Egyptians, Americans worship many gods. And the question is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? What's so great about him that I should live for him? Well, he is the only God who comes to earth and dies for his people. At the heart of the Bible is a bleeding, dying God. This, this is radically unique. No one, would, no one would ever make this kind of religion up. There is no other religion, I mean, no other God who comes to die for his people. Came to die for you. Maybe, maybe this morning, um, for those of you who are not Christians, maybe you're thinking, you know what, I, I still don't understand why Jesus had to die. Well, I, I plead with you, okay? I plead with you not to be blinded by our culture's, you know, rugged individualism. Don't be blinded by our culture's individualism. Don't be blinded by thinking that our culture's way is, is superior and, and that is the way that we should look at things. That's the way things are best. That's the only way to see things is through the lens of, of our culture. Well, maybe what other cultures throughout time have believed is true. One person acting as a representative of others, pays the debt and sets them free. This is our great hope, that even though we all have to face the destroyer, our hope is in the Lamb, and trusting in the Lamb changes absolutely everything. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy. We, we thank you that, that uh, you love us enough and care for us enough to give us a diagnosis of, of our lives that, that, that lead us to, to destruction and, and you've come to, to wake us up. To, to give us salvation. To bring us into your family. Heavenly Father, we, we, even though we try so hard to be in, in denial about how the things that, that we prioritize and make our, our ultimate priority uh, really is a false God that we serve and, and, they, and it rips us off every time. And leaves us heartbroken. There's so much destruction and pain um, involved in just being crushed time and time again by a, a, a false God that can never live up to its promises. Thank you for giving us a, a diagnosis, telling us that, that we will not find true joy in that. And then you, you show us where we can find true joy and true rest. 
It's found in a lamb that was slain for, for us out of sheer grace, unconditional love, out of, out of just pure mercy. God, we thank you for, for opening our eyes to how often we are self-righteous and therefore uh, look down on, on, on others. God, help us to realize that that grace isn't just for other people, for those bad people, whoever they may be, that that grace was also necessary for for us. And may that give us a humility so that we can share your unconditional love uh, with others. Not a patronizing way, but but just from, from humility, a heart of humility. And God, I pray that, that you would fill us with confidence in, in you, knowing that, that um, because of you, you have placed us on a solid rock. God, I, I pray that we wouldn't think about anything else right now, that, that we wouldn't be distracted by, by anything else right now and give us the ability to examine our own hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to diagnose our, our lives right now and, and the trajectory, the way that they are going, to, to give us eyes to see um, the false gods we've put our hope in that just let us down time and time again. And God, give us, by your grace, give us, give us the, the, the freedom to, to confess our sin. Knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, gladly, freely, generously, because you love us. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has not put their their faith and trust in in you, that this morning you would give them the faith, this morning you would give them the confidence and, and the courage to take that step of faith to follow you and to trust you. Even if they have so many other other questions, God, may they focus on who you are and what you've done for them, trusting that that they can discover answers to their questions along the way and not alone, but with you and with your community. We pray these things in your name. With your hands so bowed while we